there, you beautiful, wonderful, masochistic people that you are. Welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. I'm Drew Tavendale. Joining me tonight is Mr. Scott Morris. Well, hello. And as you probably know from the title you've seen your podcast player, this is the intermission for July, where we talk about a bunch of stuff, what we've done seen. We have done seen quite a bit of stuff for this month, actually. We've got seven films for you, but we'll hopefully rattle through them in no time at all. First up, we have The Circle about which I know more or less sod all. So perhaps you can inform our listeners and myself, Scott. Um, if I must. The Circle must. is a film which showed up kind of unexpectedly in the UK, just dumped onto Netflix. Now, Netflix and Amazon Prime have been putting a lot of money into original content, probably largely more known for their TV stuff, but they've started getting into the, the film distribution game as well. Um, and so I was surprised when this showed up because, you know, a cursory look at it, it's got a cast that you would expect some decent things from. You've got Tom Hanks, Emma Watson, Pat Oswalt, John Boyega, you know, lots of people who, you know, Karen Gillan as well, Bill Paxton, you know, the kind of cast that I probably wouldn't be beating down doors to see, but it's you know, a, a solid cast that you'd think Oh yeah, probably... Tom Hanks is an A-list star Yeah, Emma Watson's in one of the most successful film franchises of all time and John Boyega's the star of the new Star Wars or a star of the new Star Wars so yeah. yes, that's a, it's a fairly weighty cast Yes, and so to have it just sort of quietly slump out uh, I was quite surprised by, although having now watched it and seen a few other reviews I kind of understand the reason for it um, <laughs> written by David Eggers who I believe is one of the guys from uh, Founder McSweeney's who again, which is a, another got a reputation all of its own as well. So you would probably expect this to be quite well written and well acted, and I suppose it's reasonably well acted, but the writing not so much. In it, Emma Watson plays a young girl, May, who starts working as a customer service agent for a company called The Circle, which is essentially a combination of Facebook and Google. She is initially quite skeptical of their goals for happy clappy sharing everything and all you know caring is sharing all this kind of thing um, and is quite skeptical of the company's stated aims about knowing everything and not being creepy and that kind of thing she is disdainful when her supervisors approach her and while she's doing quite well with her job she's not sharing enough on social media and she's not taking part in as many of the entirely optional uh, social activities that go on outside the place. But eventually she sort of decides to kind of go along with it for a while. And it has a problem with her stated views at the start of the film taking a very sudden change after a near-death incident, which uh, has her kind of converted fully into the propaganda that the company's putting forwards about how everything and all information should be shared and how there should be no privacy settings on your software or any of that kind of thing. And how That sounds a bit convenient for the plot. Yes, uh, and that, that, to be honest, a lot of the points after this is kind of where I checked out, partly because that transition felt entirely irrational and, and also because the means which it came about are really stupid. Now, <laughs> this, is, this sounds like nitpicking, and it is, but it's kind of indicative of how they treat the rest of the technology in the film, which is important when your film is basically about technology. This crisis comes about after The Circle and Tom Hanks unveils this magical new camera that they've started to put out, presumably for sale or maybe just out. Small camera, sort of, they the show it as a, a sphere about one inch in diameter. This could be just dropped on, like slapped on to fix the trees, these kind of things. And they're saying that this will, will give you live uplinks of video and all that kind of thing. And their goal is to cover everywhere. So the, these cameras should be like placed around everywhere and so that there'd be no, you know, we'd be able to see all human rights abuses is how they put it and uh, gloss over any of the creepier aspects of that. But it's just the technology that's in this camera 
is annoying, right? This tiny, let's say, about an inch spear, maybe a bit smaller, camera that you just stick onto somewhere like the side of a tree and then you forget about it. And what does it do? Um, it captures all the video in like glorious high resolution and uploads it to a satellite. A satellite? So it was something that small? Because I don't know if you've seen satellite uplink stations, but uh, they're substantially larger than that. Even the small kind of mobile ones you get for um, mobile internet, still roughly what, the size of your hand and a bit thicker. You know, they're, they're oh, yes. big bits of kit. Because they need a lot of power and uh, they yes. need large antennas yes. relative to the size of the product. I and mean, it can certainly compare to a mobile phone. Yes, which you are not going to get from something that has apparently no battery. Because it has no, I was going to bring up the battery there. <laughs> yes. So it's just this annoying thing. And look, I would have let the battery issue slide, but the annoying thing about it is you don't have to do it that way. You don't have to say, oh, it uploads it by satellite. It's like, no, you would say it creates some sort of Wi-Fi mesh network with the mother ones in the area or something like that. There's there's plenty of actual technology that <laughs> yes. could achieve that, you know, battery aside, that I would have just let it slide. But it's just so so hackneyed and lazy that it's sort of, well, satellites, because satellites are tech. It's like, that's not the case. It's just This is just stupid. And it does that with quite a few other aspects of its technology that I can't really get to. So, yeah, but it turns out that these cameras sort of save May's life because she's out, um, she kind of gets a bit depressed, takes a kayak out into the middle of the sea and uh, gets into some trouble. But because it's been seen on a, a satellite on through one of these cameras, someone manages to see that and calls the emergency services to save her. And she's a sudden convert to having sharing everything of her life. So the next you know, half hour of it is her basically sharing every single aspect of her life as, as a kind of running 24-hour vlog, which is kind of used as a PR statement by the circle. Eventually, she becomes disquieted by this after her parents uh, have some issues with this, and she almost arbitrarily decides to uh, turn against her higher-ups, the Tom Hanks and Patton Oswalt's, and sort of turns the table on Athens without... You can see it coming a mile off. She sort of turns the uh, privacy angle on them and sort of opens up all their emails to the public scrutiny and all that kind of things. And there's uh, one of those endings you can see coming a mile away. I don't have any major issues with the acting, I guess. Um, it's not great, but it's fine. Emma Watson does as well as I think anyone could do with the role, but it's just so... Mm-hmm. It's, it's never believably written that her character motivations and her whole outlook on life just change on a dime and then change back again just at the convenience of what would ever drive the plot forward at that point. You know, whatever's the next point that uh, Dave Eggers wants to be making at that time. And so that's just never really sits well. And the rest of the cast, good as Tom Hanks and uh, Pan Oswald and the other guys are, they're really just not in it for all that much. Uh, Karen Gillan as well. Karen Gillan's probably the the actual best performer in it who starts off with a as a kind of high flyer in the company, but uh, the pressure gets to her and she starts cracking and pointing out the uh, the very legitimate concerns and the the happy clappy thinking that's going on at certain points of uh, board meetings and such like. Mm-hmm. And she's probably got the most uh, believable character arc in the whole thing. As someone just comes under pressure and cracks as opposed to the one that's just happening to drive the plot along. So yes, it's a very disappointing film given the level of uh, cast that's in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, no huge complaints about the rest of it it's uh, well enough shot and all that it just has a completely unbelievable story uh, and a completely unbelievable technology aspect to it which is a major part of the story which makes this quite annoying and uh, yeah the, the main character arc just isn't believable at all far from the worst film you will ever see but I cannot for the life of you think there's any reason to recommend this and it's quite frustrating uh, because this is a, f- a topic that really does need to be examined more, and I think it should mm-hmm. be examined more. And 
everywhere, but why not in films as well? This the kind of creeping uh, loss of privacy that we're all uh, seemingly just sleepwalking into as we sign away more release to Facebook and Twitter and the rest uh, is something that we should really be thinking more about, particularly when, when all that data falls in the hands of people that aren't quite so scrupulous as you would like. And that is what I hoped I would get from this film, and it delivers none of that. And instead, mm. it's just a bit of a, a melodramatic shrieking and is really in no way satisfying uh, and yes very much lost me from about the halfway mark and uh, never quite won me back over so yes i cannot possibly recommend this to anyone as i say you will see far worse films in your life but you know, there is no point in seeing this when so many better films exist in the world yeah that's a pity because yes you're absolutely right it is a topic not just worthy of being covered but necessary yeah and there have been documentaries that have made a fairly decent stab at it there's a documentary from 2013 i think called terms and conditions may apply hmm. which covers a lot of the privacy aspects of at least of end user license agreements and things rather necessarily than technology more yeah. than <laughs> software but it is important um yes we are just handing over our privacy more and more and if you understand how that worked and are willing to to make that deal the most part for instance for gmail yeah i understand my relationship there and for the and what i get out of my google usage then i am willing to hand over what i'm handing over yeah though i do prefer my relationship with for instance apple it's a reason why i prefer an apple phone to an android phone in that i understand my relationship i give them money and then that's it and i get a product from them whereas rather than selling them me yeah we get down a rabbit hole there yeah the idea so it's it's such a big thing everybody's doing it now so it's ripe for that. And yes, you may want to go down the route of the worst case scenario, but at least make it believable if you're going to do it and yeah, engaging. Exactly. Make it like that you can you could reasonably extrapolate from where we are now to a bad thing and not just get there by leaps of plot convenience yeah, um, or, or magic, which it basically sounds like you're saying they use. Yes, um, exactly, which is yeah. disappointing. It's, it's a topic that deserves better and uh, hopefully it will. Yes. Okay, so so the circle rather a disappointment then. Yes. Okay. So we move on to something entirely different then. Monkeys. Everybody loves monkeys. Mm-hmm. Apart from those people who don't love monkeys, obviously, but we don't talk about them. <laughs> I am talking, of course, about War for the Planet of the Apes, which is the third in the current run of apes films. A couple of years after the events of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Caesar's people are still at war with humans as a result of Cobra's uprising. One human group in particular troubles Caesar's tribe, an army unit called Alpha Omega, led by Woody Harrelson's madder-than-a-box-of-frogs colonel. After an incursion by Alpha Omega into Caesar's compound leaves his wife and son dead, Caesar sends his people on a journey across the desert to a safe new home, away from humans, while he and a handful of trusted friends head for Alpha Omega's base to tackle the threat of the colonel. Oh, (laughs) I hated the colonel. With his madly swivelling eyes and that crazed look in his face. Oh, I'm going to imprison your monkeys. Oh. On the way... Yeah, answers on, on the, the postcard for that reference. <laughs> on the way, they encounter a mute young girl suffering from a mysterious, contagious condition that suggests a link to the Charlton Heston apes films, as well as former zoo chip Bad Ape, voiced by Steve Zahn, who brings some sorely needy levity to proceedings. The previous two films did tenderness as well as strength, but boy were they serious. Upon reaching the Alpha Omega camp, Caesar and co discover that the rest of their tribe has been captured by the colonel, 
and they must find a way to release them. That's the second biggest monkey prison break I've ever seen. For a film called War for the Planet of the Apes, there is surprisingly little fighting, which is actually rather welcome because Michael Bay does monkeys is not what anyone wants to see. <laughs> and it's just as well, as the one big war set piece, the climactic battle, happens for reasons that don't really make a heap of sense. Instead, the film focuses more on the internal conflicts within Caesar's group, the difficulties and compromises of leadership, and his own struggles with his ethos that ape not kill ape. The war of the title is an internal and spiritual one, much more so than a literal one. That said, comparisons to Apocalypse now are sure to be made. The rank of Harrelson's nameless colonel is no coincidence, and the filmmakers themselves don't hide it. One scene sees graffiti imploring, Ape Apocalypse now, scrawled inside a tunnel. But in tone and action, it's closer to The Great Escape on the River Kwai, Western edition. One of the things that people are talking a lot about is something that I don't really want to talk too much about, and that's the special effects. Because everything has great special effects nowadays, or at least ought to, it has long since ceased to be remarkable. But I will give credit to such quality at scale, because that's a lot of monkeys. (laughs) There are one or two rather shonky moments, But again, it's due to the sheer scale, and those few minor flaws are barely noticeable. What is worth here being really talked up, though, is the combination of the animator's skills and the human performances, because these apes really feel like characters. Especially bad ape, but in truth, all of them, especially Andy Serkis' Caesar. Fifteen years ago, Gollum was a remarkable achievement technically and artistically, but he was a single character. The vast majority of this film consists of nothing but pixels interacting with other pixels, but the characters feel alive and real. It doesn't take long, if it happened at all, to stop considering the apes as special effects and start considering them as actors. Weta know their stuff. Sadly, most of the actors are as ill-served by the script as the majority of characters in any action film, and I used actors there as a gender-neutral collective term, but it's also unfortunately gender-accurate as... Aside from the mute human girl, there is pretty much a female role. (laughs) Setting aside that it may be the most ironic statement in the history of cinema, a well-known filmmaker once observed, correctly, that a special effect without a story is a pretty boring thing. (laughs) While the script of the big monkey battle isn't going to be setting anyone's soul on fire, it uses special effects as a means to tell a story, rather than as an end in itself, better than pretty much anything I can think of in the last few years. For all of that, I wish I had enjoyed it more. It's absolutely fine. Entirely adequate. Entertaining for most of its too long 140 minutes. But other than as a post-SFX touchstone, I doubt it'll ever trouble my thoughts again. A pity, but maybe there's some value or noteworthiness to the fact a cast of almost entirely non-existent creatures can make as believable and watchable a satisfactory action film as a cast of humans. Yeah, I've not caught up with this. Uh, I was actually looking forward to doing so, then I realised I hadn't actually caught up with Dawn for the Planet of the Apes. Uh, really? The Planet of the Apes, <laughs> which, which baffles me because I really quite enjoyed the first Planet of the Apes film. It's as good a remake as we've seen uh, in the last 20 years or so. Yeah, uh, it's really quite different from the Charlton Heston one. It, yeah. It's so different I would hesitate to call it a remake True. actually. Um, but yeah, it ain't nice the Tim plan- Burton one, so you know, yeah, so no, that's, that's not for it. I mean, and even with the presence of James Franco, who Generally, not particularly well. Not, not that he's bad, but I don't know. He never seems to have much of a character in most things. But mm. yeah, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, with the exception maybe of John Lithgow's Gurning. Um, yeah. 
is is pretty entertaining. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, though I can barely remember now. I remember that there was an uprising from an ape called mm. Kobo Koba, and I think Gary Oldman was in it, which means he probably chewed the scenery. <laughs> because I think I remember Gary Oldman being in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, not massively different to how he was in the Book of Eli. Oh God! <laughs> yes, um, but I do recall as much as I recall that film at all. And it, it's not left a huge impression on my memory. But I do remember thinking that, again, Andy Serkis as Caesar and the Weta special effects were fantastic. It just it was a very kind of grim and serious film, whereas this film has a bunch of... A comic relief is basically the best way to put it. Right. Um, and it really... Uh, it helps make the character... I'm going to say more human, but uh, you understand what I mean by that. It, it mm. makes the apes more rounded as characters too, because you know they can have a laugh um, yeah. as well. It's just it leavens the film a little. I like a good effect spectacular now and again. Particularly if it's something that seems believable rather than something that's just comic book characters hitting each other. It's not even so much whether it's believable or not, although that, that helps because you get more invested in something that at least part of your brain is saying, oh, that's a real creature. Yeah. It's more that, you know, there is a point to it. Yeah. Because so many films, effects as an end, and I don't see the point of that or yeah. know, it's like, oh, we're just going to have this big spectacular without really seeing anything interesting. I'm looking at you, Captain America Civil War. Yeah. <laughs> and... Here, it, it is definitely a case of they're using combination of motion capture, which I think they're still doing, and certainly real actors' voices, mm-hmm. um, as well as the skill of the animators, and bringing it all together to make what are genuinely believable characters. Yeah. Um, and that makes a big, big difference. It really does. But I would catch up on Dawn first if you haven't seen that, Scott. Yeah, um, that's that definitely worth watching. <laughs> I mean, clearly, because I can barely remember Dawn, you can watch War without <laughs> having seen Dawn. <laughs> But I do remember that I enjoyed it at the time. Hmm. I just, I am just slightly disappointed that I didn't enjoy this more. Uh, yeah. The actual story itself isn't special. It's just, it's elevated by an effects job that makes it not seem like an effects job. <laughs> which is weird. So I have in fact finished by doing exactly what I didn't want to do, which is talk about the effects and nothing more. But <laughs> it does get a recommendation from me. I just, I really think in a, in a couple of years, I'll, I'll be in the same position as I was with dawn of the planet of the apes and i'll barely be able to remember it yeah definitely worth watching once will do so then another special effects creature film then scott okja yes uh, okja which is another of the uh, netflix distributed if that's the, the word we we use for it uh, yeah. was this one of the the netflix films that was controversially in competition at can this year though yes i believe it was yes yeah so, so it sounded familiar yes uh, so they've picked up Junhu Bong's latest film, who you may know for such films as Snowpiercer and The Host, which is where he first came to my attention. Mm-hmm. Both films I am not quite so enamoured with as uh, most of the yes. internet seems to be. Um, I think um, they're both I pretty exactly good. Films. The same. Yeah, they're both pretty good. Uh, I've no huge complaints about them. There's certainly there's aspects in each of them that I really liked, particularly in Snowpiercer, which has a tremendous sense of style to it. But as a film overall, yeah. Mm, yes, I, I felt the same, largely. Yeah. And also, it was one of those films where I simply wasn't able to detach myself from the fact that the world made no sense, and it <laughs> yes. was really bothering me. Yeah. Um, so I didn't know an awful lot uh, of what to expect from Okja. Uh, I try not to spoil myself even with trailers for films these days, but what it seemed to be was uh, a charming story about a small girl and a large pig, and I thought, yes, I'm on board with that. Dog hippo. Yes. <laughs> I take... 
I take exception to the fact that for all of this film it's referred to as a super pig. It's a dog hippo. <laughs> um, and I suppose for about the first, well, with one exception, for about the first five, ten minutes, this was kind of what I anticipated it would be, which is something that is essentially my neighbour Totoro, but with a, a large pig. Uh, and it's a sort of a charming little adventure of a girl who had a relationship with the pig. And it, the only thing that kind of threw me off with this was the the one very early Doors um, F-bomb, which thought, oh, that doesn't really seem in place. And then it kind of became a bit more obvious that uh, this film is actually going to be a fairly darker place uh, than I had expected in the first instance. Um, the general uh, world concept here is that Tilda Swinton's uh, Lucy Mirando has genetically engineered a pig, a giant super pig, and then for reasons dog that are, uh, giant pig, dog hippo, and for reasons that aren't particularly well delineated, um, has uh, some kind of competition to have these pigs raised by farmers uh, across the globe with the idea of picking one who would be the, the best and also then just have massive farms that would produce them on scale and then use them as a food source. There's lots of things that don't quite tie up together in the film, but it didn't really bother me all that much when I was watching it. Um, the, what we're immediately interested in here is the young girl, uh, Mia, played by Sia Hyunan. She's distraught when the company basically comes and takes Okja, the large pig, away from them, and she resolves to get it back by hook or by crook, aided by the Animal Liberation Front, headed up by Paul Bukum Dano. And, of course, they must go up against the corporation to, to bust the pig out of the facility that it's being held in. And the bizarrely scenery-chewing Jake Gyllenhaal, who's acting as a frontman for the company, is Johnny Wilcox. <laughs> that, that's the <laughs> oddest performance I've seen in quite some time. Like, there's there's a lot of really odd things in this film that shouldn't really hang together. I mean, Paul Dano's performance as the LF guy is particularly strange as well. Um, Gyllenhaal's all over the shop, bouncing about the place. But somehow, all of this seems to work really well. Um, it's a tremendous watch, and I've really found myself enjoying it and being carried along with it. It's a, it is essentially something like a, a Ghibli film in live action with lots of swearing and violence. And it's it's a bit of a mishmash. It shouldn't really work, I suppose, on a number of levels. It's, it's, there's a lot of conflicting things that somehow shouldn't really hang together in a film, but I've got to admit, for me, it did. I was uh, quite quite happy watching all this film. There's lots of nice little touches. Uh, the CG is not super brilliant, but uh, it gets the job done. It gets the, the kind of emotions across, which is what I needed to do, and that's, that's all I'm really asking for. In terms of wider sociological messages, uh, doesn't really have one, I don't think. Um, you could probably tease something out of there if you want to, but I don't think that was ever the primary goal of this film. Um, it's just more of a, a shaggy, super pig, hippo dog tale. And uh, taken on that level and that level alone, I heartily enjoyed it. Quirky by its nature, I guess. And uh, it certainly won't be everyone's cup of tea. But uh, yes, this one is easily Jun Hu Bong's most successful film that I've seen. And yes, I, I happily enjoyed it uh, and will look forward to watching it again sometime. This is the third Junho Bong film I've seen. The other two being the two you mentioned. It's got Snowpiercer and The Host. And and both of those had elements that I perhaps admire would be the word that, that I could admire. Um, mm. But never really did anything for me. And certainly didn't excite me in the way that so many people seem to have. Yeah. People thought Snowpiercer was the bee's knees. And I think they watched a different film for me. It felt <laughs> like at times. It's Okja though. First of all, I'm going to start off with the things I really liked about Okja. I really like the poster, which really stands out because posters for certainly mainstream films nowadays are 
the most insipid, dull, floating head nonsense that tell you absolutely nothing about a film. This poster actually is um, creative and tells you about the film. Unfortunately, that's pretty much where the things I liked about this film end. Aww. Um, it's not even like the other things that I disliked, but I genuinely don't remember registering a single emotion, negative or positive, watching this, which is pretty much the single oddest experience I've ever had watching a film. And it's, it's not even hyperbole. I, I watched this and it's like, it is a thing that is there. Um, and I'd been looking forward to it because you had recommended it and you'd mentioned it um, being like a, like a live action Studio Ghibli thing film and i thought oh okay this this could be appealing and unless hunger counts as an emotion <laughs> because it definitely at one point in the film when they're eating the super pig jerky i was hungry um <laughs> i just watched this with the most unaffected well, complete lack of affect for the whole film and i've never seen a film that i felt that way about i've been bored by films i've been excited by films i have hated films because they're stupid or don't make sense or for various other things this film was a film that was there and my eyes were pointed in the direction of the screen and then it ended. And, <laughs> and I, well, suspect probably maybe that issue is with me and the way I've been feeling of late. But it's, it's just a film that was there and even your man's... <laughs> Jake. Jake. Jake Jake Hill. That doesn't sound right. His name's not Jake. Jake Gyllenhaal. What's his name? What's his name? Oh, it is Jake, right, yes. Jockey um, Gyllenhaal. Yeah. Yes. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal. His coke fueled, I'm guessing, um, uh, interpretation of that character. Even that just, it didn't do anything for me. And it's the strangest thing. I don't know whether maybe I wanted it to be, it, it feels like it's, it has an agenda, but never quite delivers on it. Yeah, that's possibly fair. It doesn't seem to have any particular drive to a message other than maybe genetically modified things are bad, but it doesn't even push that particularly strongly. Yes, but that's, not strong um, enough for me to disagree with it either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and also genetically modified things aren't necessarily bad, and that's the problem with them if people don't understand it. Yeah, um, and maybe if you're going to tackle that in a film, maybe you could try a bit of fact. You know, genetically modified crops and things got such a bad name, and in some some countries they aren't an issue at all. I think some mm. European countries that actually because they're properly regulated, people understand them. It's not an issue. Mm. Whereas in I think the United States and um, United Kingdom then it became a, a much bigger issue. Thank you very much, Daily Mail. Mm. But yes, they're not necessarily a bad thing, as long as you're, you're sensible with them. Um, so, But it doesn't even seem to deliver on that front. And no. it feels like it's just saying, going along like the whole Morrissey nonsense of meat is murder and things, and it doesn't even really do that. And I thought maybe it was trying to hint towards, you know, like, yes, meat is murder. But, and I was ready to get angry at that, because the idea that being a meat eater and caring about animal welfare somehow mutually exclusive and I was ready to get angry but it didn't really deliver on that either so <laughs> it's the strangest thing in this film it's a film that had no emotional effect on me at all which mm. ought not to be possible as a human being but there <laughs> we go it's either one of these films it's either just not for you or you weren't in the mood for it but yeah I really enjoyed Okja I thought it was uh, quite charming let's say there's it, there are parts where it doesn't seem to fit that's perhaps why I was enjoying it, because there's really no reason for Jake Gyllenhaal to be bouncing around quite so much doing that kind of hyper-stylized performance when the rest of the film is a somewhat more down-to-earth. Like, it seems like there's a very serious plotline running through it with, you know, the kids trying to get her Ucha back, and also with the Paul Dano's ALF front that are trying to help us, which you, you, 
actually you know, violent in places. And then it mashes, <laughs> cuts directly to him gibbering about the place like a lunatic, which shouldn't yeah, work. So yeah, so yes, you have, yeah, it's, so it's got those sort of, yeah, more more straightforward plot lines, as you say, and then it's got the Jake Gyllenhaal on some sort of mad cocktail of drugs. I, I, I assume it must be, because <laughs> I, I don't understand that performance otherwise. Uh, and then the bizarre subplot with Tilda Swinton and Tilda Swinton and Giancarlo Esposito. Yeah, which doesn't so, go anywhere either. No, and it doesn't make a good deal of sense either. And it's it's just not interesting. And I am no fan of Tilda Swinton anyway. So when you've got double the Tilda Swinton in the film and for no good reason, I wasn't particularly <laughs> happy about that. But yeah, I don't know. I can see other people like it. I can see why people would like this. Just, I was expecting something special. Mm. And I got something... You got something. <laughs> I, got, I got something yeah. entirely, entirely, entirely a thing. Yes, yeah, so it was no, entirely a thing that was there. <laughs> well, as I say, um, I'm just repeating myself now, but I, I, I enjoyed it. It's, it's very quirky and individual, and I appreciated it for some of the things it's doing. Uh, John Ronson, I see, is also listed in the screenplay, and I think that comes across in some of the dialogue in particular, which is uh, uh, quite chipper in places. Uh, that that worked for me as well. Uh, some of the little interplays that's going on there, um, and. I think, special mention, I really enjoyed Paul Dano's performance as the incredibly deadpan ALF guy. Uh, that, that worked out quite well, leader of the, <laughs> the terrorist ALF front. Yeah, as I say, sometimes a film's not for you, um, and there's nothing particularly wrong with that. But yes, yeah, so Ukja was for me. I heartily enjoyed it, and I would recommend it to all. I should have to me, and I, I do remember having this thought watching it, but I think I must have sort of put it to the back of my mind. But I do remember having an issue that a lot of the plot is based on the fact that the little girl doesn't want Ogja to be slaughtered for food. Yeah. She's the daughter or granddaughter of a farmer. Yeah. How didn't she know that that was the entire point? That <laughs> doesn't make a great deal of sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's not like she's a vegetarian or anything. No. Because when her grandfather's trying to cheer her up and he says, I've made you your favourite dinner, um, some sort of chicken stew or something. It's like, yeah. well, clearly it's not like she's she doesn't eat meat or anything like that, so... That kind of annoyed me because it didn't make a yeah, heap but of sense. I, I guess that was going more for the fact that, that Okja was more like a pet or a friend. Mm-hmm. The, the way that you'd you probably wouldn't want your dog to be eaten if you'd been you know closely known with it for. Yeah, but again, it's, it, them being farmers, um, although they don't seem to have a great deal more livestock. Um, they had chickens and the dog hippo, so maybe that. <laughs> but like, farmers care a great deal about their animals and can be even friendly with them, but like humans have been doing for tens of thousands of years, they still mm. know that, that the whole purpose at the end is to slaughter them. And you do that in a, a humane way so that the animal doesn't yeah. suffer, certainly. So, but th- that's the purpose. Yeah. If um, there's any farmers out there, tell us if you would eat your dog, you monsters, <laughs> and we'll put this argument to bed. <laughs> yes, um, vastly different opinions on, on Okja there. We'll move on to a film that I think just I've seen, Scott, Baby Driver. Yes, so we'll have vastly different opinions about this as well, as long as you count we'll by have not an having opinion, an opinion. And a lack of opinion, yes. <laughs> yes. Now, before we begin here, firstly, a proviso. I made the mistake of watching the recent episode of Half in the Bag that covered both Spider-Man Homecoming and Baby Driver before I wrote my own notes and found myself nodding along to almost the entirety of the episode, especially Jay, so... While all thoughts are my own, it is possible, if unlikely, that certain phrasings may bear similarities to that episode, because it was like they were reading my thoughts for large parts of it. (laughs) If so, I apologise. But now with that out of the way, let me tell you about Baby Driver. Written and directed by Edgar Wright, and his first film since 2013's The World's End due to the whole Ant-Man thing, Baby Driver is a film Wright has been working on for more than 20 years. 
it is the story of a talented young driver, Baby, played by Ansel Elgort, whose youthful passion for joyriding saw him take the wrong man's car. He's been paying for that mistake ever since, as this man, Doc, played by Kevin Spacey, has been forcing Baby to be the getaway driver for the heist that he sets up, until such time as Baby has paid back his rather considerable debt. As well as his prodigious talent behind the wheel, Baby is marked out by his nearly constant use of iPods to provide his life with a soundtrack, and to drown out the chronic tinnitus from which he suffers as a result of a childhood tragedy. This in turn sets up the film's signature style, that the vast majority of the action sequences are choreographed to the rhythm of whatever music Baby is currently listening to. That's something that could very easily have become gimmicky, but it stays just the right side of that and remains entertaining as well as driving the action along at a good clip. I will say that in the opening minutes, when Baby begins using the car as percussion for the music as he waits for the gang to leave the bank, that I thought he seemed like a complete and utter pillock. But, <laughs> fortunately, I realised what Wright was doing very quickly and enjoyed it wholeheartedly for the rest of the film. As to the rest of the film, Baby does his final job to repay Doc, but is rather naive in believing that such a valuable asset as he would be allowed to simply walk away, and so he must find a way to extricate himself from this life and to build a relationship with Deborah, the waitress he met. His plans are complicated considerably by the presence of a psychopathic robber called Bats, played by Jamie. Hey, listen up y'all, I'm Jamie Fox, and I'm taking all these scenes now you hear because I'm Jamie Fox. in case you forget Fox, It's at this point that the film becomes a Tarantino film made by Edgar Wright, which I am absolutely fine with, <laughs> even if the excessive violence of the second half seems rather detached from the first. This is, though, clearly an Edgar Wright film and it's full of the visual flair and flourish by which he made his name. Aided by the Matrix DP Bill Pope, with whom Wright also worked in Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Despite being turned up to live in... Tay, Jamie Foxx is entertaining, and there are good turns from John Hammond, Kevin Spacey, and C.J. Jones's baby's foster father Joe. Elgort himself, though, is rather... blank. Which may sound harsher than I intend, and the failing is partly in the film's central conceit. Baby isolates himself from the world through his music, but that isolation makes him rather anonymous as a character. His character is developed a little more in his scenes away from the crime world, but they're simply not enough, so he remains defined by his earpods and sunglasses, which is not the deepest characterization you're likely to find. There are obvious comparisons to be drawn between Baby Driver and Guardians of the Galaxy, and, again, to Tarantino, due to the use of music. But Baby Driver is considerably more eclectic than Guardians, and the music is much more skillfully woven into the action. Something Wright, of course, has previous form with, beginning all the way back in Shaun of the Dead. There is some humour in Baby Driver, but I find myself wanting more. Though that could just be because I've been conditioned by previous Edgar Wright films. They're usually very funny, but that, of course, doesn't mean that all of his films have to be comedies. What is a more legitimate complaint is that the film lacks heart. Not that it's cold by any means, but it is missing the emotional core that is so prominent in, for example, the Cornetto trilogy. I wonder if that's because this film is written by Wright alone. He usually has a writing partner, and perhaps that other person, often Simon Pegg, is where the heart comes from. Or, at least, that collaboration draws that aspect out of him. For the action portions of the film, that lack doesn't really matter but the middle third really sags because of it, as the focus of that section is the relationship between Deborah and Baby, and it just doesn't ring true. They're both reasonably likeable, and that they would fall for each other is entirely plausible, but their relationship seems to go from A to L without passing through any of the stages in between. We've only known each other for two days, but yes, obviously you love me and I will go on the run with you. <laughs> for why, Keats? For why? 
that's a real disappointment in an otherwise thoroughly entertaining film, and I'd certainly recommend watching it, but I just don't think that, in a few years, it's going to stay with you in the same way that, say, Hot Fuzz does. But it does get bonus points for getting Bex Deborah into a film, for which I thank Mr. Wright very much indeed. Yes, uh, as mentioned, not seen it, so I withhold my opinion, but yes, <laughs> I, I generally like Edgar Wright's stuff, so I will certainly be giving it a, a good old look in due course. Yes, I'd be genuinely surprised if you didn't like this, Scott. It, it's got... I mean, story-wise, it's not really like anything that he's done before, but it has a lot of his style to it. Yeah. And it's just a, it's a very entertaining film. It just, I don't know, people have been raving about this film. And for me, it just lacked... It's, like, it's a very good film, but it's not a great film, and it lacked something to make it special. Mm-hmm. But uh, definitely, uh, I would absolutely recommend watching it if you've liked any of Edgar Wright's other work. I sure do. Well, I keep meaning to go back and look at Scott uh, Pilgrim vs. The World, which is, I think, one of the few... Edgar Wright films that I've only seen once and never went back to, but I enjoyed that even at the time. Just would like to see how that holds up. So yes, so certainly we'll schedule Baby Driver at some point. Yes, I did go back to Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. I don't know, perhaps last year, hmm. and I think maybe I fell asleep because I barely remember <laughs> watching it the second time. So I think it stands up less well. But I did watch the whole Cornetto trilogy again towards the start of this year, I think, and I think I enjoy them more each time. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping this is more to that end of things. Obviously, with only one of us having seen that, we can't say a great deal more. <laughs> so let's move on to something that, fortunately, we have both seen, and that's Colossal. In Colossal, you have Anne Hathaway playing a alcoholic party girl in New York who is kicked out of their apartment by their boyfriend uh, after he can't deal with her problem drinking anymore. So she goes back home to a small town in uh, America? So <laughs> I it. think it's not important. Um, but anyway. It's upstate New York, I think, isn't it? Or not far from New York City, but it yeah. matters. Yeah, so off to the small town where she falls back into the orbit of old friend Oscar, played by Jason Sudeikis, and basically starts trying to partially rekindle that relationship and try and get her life back together, but also at the same time still carry on drinking in parts. Um, she's still just trying to get her life together and work out what's going on. But that takes an unexpected turn when she one point takes a shortcut across a children's play park, only to find out the next morning that in what you would think would be an entirely unrelated event, a huge Godzilla-esque monster has appeared in South Korea in Seoul and started trashing the place. There doesn't seem to be any particular connection to this until at some point the next day. She takes another uh, trip, a shortcut back through that uh, kid's park, and again, this monster appears and trashes Seoul. (laughs) And um, it turns out that there is some thankfully entirely unexplained connection between this particular area of of New York, of upstate New York, and Seoul and her inhabiting a monster. So once she works out this, she naturally eventually reveals it to Jason Sudeikis and tries to get some help. On a kind of plot recap level, this sounds like it's some zany knockabout comedy, which is quite a very different vibe you get, certainly by the end of this film, where although there are giant monsters in it, they're not in any way, shape or form the main focus of the film. There's no real scenes of people trying to defeat the monster or anything like that, due to the the nature of how these are manifesting themselves. Uh, Instead, it just becomes uh, an example of human nature and some of humanity's darker aspects coming out to itself, especially by the end of the film. So while Anne Hathaway does uh, very well in her role, it's really Jason Sudeikis that does the bulk of the work in this film as he goes from a supportive friend to becoming 
almost jealous and then outright violent and uh, obsessed by the end of it. And it's a, it's a real change in character and something that I don't think he gets a gets a chance to show off all that often. Uh, generally more of a, a comedic actor. So when it's good to see that when he is able to mix in the dramatic parts as well, he can pull off uh, that quite effectively as well. So, uh, yes, yeah, so I, I suppose it's a comedy that turns into a dark comedy by the end of it. Um, and I think it's it works quite well. It's a very interesting film. It's I mean, I'm no genre expert, but there's not been an awful lot of innovation in the giant monster genre since, <laughs> what, maybe Cloverfield at a push? Um, so this is certainly a, some innovative thought technology that can be added into that uh, vertical. But other than that, um, I would say I enjoy it well enough to recommend it. It didn't absolutely blow me away. It's just a solidly enjoyable watch with a very imaginative premise that I think it does probably about as, as much with as you could. And... Yes, it's, it's it's an enjoyable enough little watch and certainly one of the more um, unusual uh, things you could see in this sort of uh, instance. I get the feeling that I didn't enjoy it quite as much as you did, Scott, but it's certainly interesting, mm. which is very often en- enough of a reason uh, because bland and anodyne and <laughs> um, cookie cutter this is not. Yes. It is surprisingly dark. Yeah. The way it goes towards the end, both what, character's actions as well as his intentions and yeah and i really didn't see that coming at oh, all that um, me, but yeah i didn't really know what to expect from colossal i don't think i knew anything about it before i watched it i must have just seen it being available and thought oh, okay i'll give that a go let's see what this is like it's such a hard film to describe because it's got about four different genres in it yeah <laughs> and yeah it's it goes to a surprisingly dark place um but does end um, in, a, in a very satisfying manner. Yeah. I mean, I suppose more than anything, it's a monster movie, sort of. Um, but with a very, very unique take on that. Yeah. I'm struggling here because I really don't know how to describe this film. Other than that, I don't really think I've seen anything much like it. It is odd, but in a good way, I guess. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And is, of course, yet another film in which I refuse to believe that Jason Sudeikis and Ed Helms are not just the same person <laughs> acting under different names. Um, because genuinely, for for a long time, I thought they were the same person, hmm. which generally doesn't happen to me, so I, I think they must be. For me, it's like um, John Oliver's assertion that there is only one Olsen twin. I should just move, <laughs> move from place to place very, very quickly. Um, really unusual take on monster films and to be honest it's difficult to talk about without giving anything away that's the big problem i have with this because i really didn't know what to expect from this film so everything came as a nice fresh surprise and i'd want other people to be able to do the same thing so i think maybe best i don't even try and speak about it more other than that it's odd but interesting very unlike pretty much anything i've ever seen as you say it's certainly very much unlike anything that i was expecting or seen before it's an effective fusion of a few different things. I think uh, if you've certainly if you've got even the slightest interest in the kind of monster film genre, you definitely need to see this. But I think even it's even just a, a good drama that happens to have monsters, <laughs> monsters, in it, monsters in it as well. And in places, it is very funny. So it's got a lot of things going for it, and uh, yeah, there's there's something for everyone. So yeah, if you're part of everyone, give it a go. <laughs> yeah. Um- Really, it's it's the word different. That's the key thing. It, it's so different yeah. from so many other films. I really, 
I can't think of anything quite like this. And that in itself is just, it's refreshing. Yeah. And I know there, there are still so many films made every year, but when it feels like all you're getting is TV adaptations or reboots or soft reboots or sequels or comic book films, it all gets on top of you a bit much. Mm-hmm. But when you have something that's not really like anything else that's, well, that gets the big marketing budget anyway, refreshingly different is the best thing I would say about it. Yes, um, I was just trying to find quickly the uh, budget for it there and I've come up a blank, but... Um, $50 million. Yeah, which is not a lot and I think it looks pretty good for that amount of money. Um, and mm. given the cast, I'm sure Anne Hathaway draws a fair amount of budget from it as well. So I would imagine yeah. so, yeah. Um, I think they've... They've done a very good job with their budget, I would say, on that film. Uh, it's done it very effectively. Yes. Uh, it's all round. Unfortunately, that takes us to a cure for wellness. Yes, that <laughs> is certainly unfortunate, Scott. If you want to re-title it A Cure for Insomnia, you'd be getting close <laughs> to the actual point. <laughs> yes. Dane DeHaan plays a character called Lockhart, who is a young investment banker. And now, I know that is synonymous with douchebag, but I want to point out that he's an extra specially douchebaggy sort of douchebag. <laughs> uh, certainly at the very start of this film. And he is called in by his higher-ups to go to a uh, retreat in the Swiss Alps or somewhere equally picturesque to retrieve a high-ranking member of their board who they're hoping to pin on some uh, financial irregularities and uh, shuffle him out of the company that way. But as soon as he gets to the uh, spa, the treatment centre, it turns out that things are very much not what they seem on a vast number of levels, and it is at least nominally a mystery uh, mystery horror, I suppose, for the most part of it. I won't go into too many of the details, but mainly because it's really boring uh, for the <laughs> most part. Um, not an awful lot happens, uh, apart from Dane DeHaan shuffling around various wards of the hospital and gradually uncovering things that don't really make a lot of sense. And I was mildly taken in by the premise at the start, and certainly the the visuals help. It's an amazing-looking film. Gore Verbinski does uh, have his ways of producing some quite nice-looking vistas when he when he needs to, along with his, uh, Bojan Ambazelli, who's the DOP in this one. Mm-hmm, though he doesn't have the most interesting filmography himself, though. And, no. Um, I guess the remake of The Ring is maybe the most visually um, striking film that Bojan Bazelli's done. So you look at things like The Sorcerer's Apprentice or G-Force, is that, I think that was a film about gerbils. Um, <laughs> it's not the... Yeah, Rock of Ages. I remember looking through it and thinking this was a, a substantially, uh, you know, it was a bit of a step up. Um, how yeah, much of that yeah. is just the location? And how much of that's uh, Gore Verbinski kind of dragging him along as well? Because I think he's a fairly visual director at the best of times. Uh, and there were some shots that were trying a little bit too hard. Like there's one particular shot they used from, you know, kind of behind a mounted uh, stag head or something like that, which looked like a Resident Evil camera angle. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, probably the only high point in this film. There, there's a lot of really nicely composed shots. It's a very nice visual film. Uh, the plot, however, is absolute nonsense. By the end of it, it's gone from sort of vaguely sciencey to just outright black magic. At which point, I gave up entirely. Yeah, uh, well, actual <laughs> actual black magic too, not just like yes. you're trying to um, denigrate it with your choice of words. No, but oh. basically, it turns into black magic. <laughs> yes, I don't necessarily think it's badly acted. I think they're all really doing what they've been told to do and what they've been written to do. Uh, like Mia Goth is the the young girl who 
is pivotal to a lot of events and Jason Isaacs Volmer is the head doctor of the hospital which of course gets into uh, something later on it's supposedly things are not not as they seem at all they're doing what they've been told to well and I feel particularly sorry for Dane DeHaan who's doing a great job of being a pillock to the point <laughs> where it is entirely impossible to root for him because he is such a dork and he's such an unlikable lead character that I was actively hoping that something unpleasant would happen to him and yes, I actually find myself feeling the same. It's really the absolute opposite of what you want for this. And I thought they were going to try and do something clever by you know, having him. And I think you know, maybe that's how they're trying to do is have him you know, become more sympathetic as it goes along. But it really doesn't. He's a douchebag <laughs> from the start and he's a douchebag at the end. And it's really difficult to care about him at all. And that is probably the one thing that sinks the film more than anyone else. The, the, the way that this character has uh, been handled means that it's effectively impossible to care about anything that happens in this film, which means that it does feel like it's 15 hours long. 15 it's, days. Yeah, it just it just stretches out to the infinity line. An absolute chore to watch, which is, in a way, is a shame, because I think there's a lot of quality here, but it's just quality in service of such a dismal, characterised story mm. that it's um, really been wasted on everyone. It's a waste of everyone's time and effort. Um, and... You can see the effort that's gone into it, I think. It's just that that effort has been completely wasted. Squandered, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, so. it's to, um, effort towards no useful end. Yes. <laughs> I think that genuinely I didn't care about a single character in this film. Yeah. <laughs> so like even, as it wasn't even to the point, it's like, well, maybe, apart from Dane DeHaan's character, which I, I hope something terrible would happen to, because he's, <laughs> he was did such a, a sterling job, as you say, of being a very unpleasant person. Yeah. But everyone else, I'm like, a little mm. person who is there who I've apparently been watching for 17 days straight now, <laughs> will you please go away now? Um, because even, I, mean, I suppose you're supposed to feel sympathy for the girl. Yeah. But she's terrible. She's so wooden. Yeah. And again, maybe that's less the acting than the writing. Mm. But still, it's like, oh, look, I am the required by regulation spooky girl. Um, <laughs> That there's something not quite right about it. Like, uh huh. And I uh, know you just walk about in bare feet. Well, that that's all. Oh, that that's your entire character. Okay, right. This um, it doesn't help too that you know within the first three or four days exactly where the story's going, and it just takes you the rest of the month to get there. But I mean, and there are some logic failings too. The things if I talk about that's probably a spoiler, but <laughs> that's necessarily a problem. <laughs> A character has a particular injury and it turns out that in the end they didn't have that injury and I was expecting that for pretty much the entire time that character had this supposed injury. I think you know what I'm talking about Scott. Yeah. But it doesn't make any sense because if you have that injury you're aware of it because it hurts. <laughs> I have had that injury. It hurts a lot. There, There is no way you could conceivably have this type of injury and not know whether it's real or not. Yeah. Okay, so so yes, there are some logic feelings. And the film's biggest problem, it simply is so dull. Yeah. And yes, it it's a very visually appealing film. But in that regard too, it reminded me so much of of Stoker. Mm, yeah. Which was a similarly beautiful film. Better looking actually than the Q films because Stoker was very colourful as well, and that's maybe in comparison a cure for wellness feels a bit desaturated. Yeah, but yeah, Stoker is this beautifully composed film, which went on for a good three or four months, and about which I cared not one jot. Yeah. And 
the characters in which I cared about not one jot and the mystery in which I worked out within about three or four minutes and knew what was going to happen and um, then it just took you know, the rest of my life to finish. <laughs> the big problem is this story. It's just not interesting and it take a very, very long time to not tell it. <laughs> and I, don't, I honestly don't know if there's anything that you could do with that story to make it more interesting other than leave a story like that where it belongs in the realms of schlock. Yeah. It's a B-movie story. And yeah. in sort of, you know, a schlocky, cheesy take on that at a considerably shorter running time. And then it's, you have completely different expectations there too. You know, yeah. when you have, I don't particularly rate Gore Verbinski, but yeah, it's certainly, he's had some very big films, mm. like the original Pirates of the Caribbean. I can't remember if he did any of the other ones. Mm. And then um, he did... A pointless, obviously, but very, very faithful, very entertaining remake of Ringu. His best so work's he... probably still Rango, though, which... <laughs> ah, Gore Verbinski did Rango. I'd yeah. entirely forgotten that. Yeah, Rango I actually thoroughly enjoyed. But yeah, so yeah, you've got a, a, a director who's done some good stuff there, and, and Jason Isaac's generally fairly dependable. Actor-wise, there's not really anybody else there. The only two things I can think of that I've seen Dane DeHaan in, there's possibly something I'm forgetting, but is The Place Beyond the Pines, which is terrible, and The Amazing Spider-Man 2, which is also terrible, and which his character is also deeply, deeply unlikable. And, yeah, so there's not even, like, anything that would really get me excited about this film in terms of people involved with it. It's not an interesting story, and I I just left wondering why. Why this film? Yeah, it's a strange script to pull up in this day and age. Just when you were talking earlier, it kind of... I think hit on with something. It's almost like it's an old Hammer horror film. Yeah, exactly that kind of feel. Yeah, yeah. Sort of been resurrected and given a kind of really glossy, high budget treatment. Yeah, I mean, this film doesn't deserve forty million dollars. Yeah, I think it's just a story whose time has been and gone. Um, I'm not saying you can't pull something like that off. Perhaps uh, you know, something like the Woman in Black, of course, it was similar sort of thing, but that was far more effective than this uh, because it had characters that you could actually like or appreciate as human beings at some point. Yeah, but this one doesn't work. Yeah, A Cure for Wellness just has no real reason to exist in this universe, and shouldn't. So don't let it in. Just don't watch it. Avoid. Yes, I would very much um, echo that. Avoid. For it is not good. Hi then. We feel like we've been talking for approximately ever. Much like that film went on for, but... We're going to move to our final film of the night, which fortunately, considerably more rewarding. And that would be Spider-Man Homecoming, featuring the 12th different Spider-Man in the last 15 years, and now a part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, making it the 443rd entry into that series. (laughs) Okay, perhaps mildly hyperbolic, but this is the third actor, and the sixth film. Seven, if you count the character's appearance in Captain America's Civil War, and really, you should, because it was one of that film's few highlights for Marvel's web-slinging crime fighter in a decade and a half. That seems excessive. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> but gotta get that filthy looker, I guess. The big difference this time is that, as the character always should have been, Peter Parker is a kid. Really a kid. He's 15. In the usual way of Hollywood, Tom Holland, who plays Spidey, was 20 when he filmed this, and all of his colleagues were older than the parts they are playing. Yeah, it's a slight improvement from the yeah. 30 you normally get, yeah. isn't it? But... But, but, it's considerably less egregious and far more believable than has hitherto been the case. While I liked Tobey Maguire in the Sam Raimi films, 
at no point was I buying the then 27-year-old Maguire as a high school student, yeah. nor the 29-year-old Andrew Garfield in the 2012 reboot. But they had but, cool hair, like the kids have. They weren't bald like me, so... Andrew Garfield had a skateboard. Well, obviously then, he must be in high school and that's entirely believable. He was wearing a t-shirt that said, hello, fellow kids. <laughs> but Holland? Absolutely. And actually, just, I'm going to talk a bit more about Tom Holland before we went on to that. Part of why he seems more like a kid is that he's not very big. Um, yeah. Whereas Andrew Garfield is the same height as me, I think, six foot two, and he was really buff, and he was more like your Captain America type yeah. than a Spider-Man type, and it, it never fitted. At least Tobey Maguire was short, and it felt more appropriate. Whereas Tom Holland physically feels like a kid, and that works so much better because the film focuses so much on the kind of the gawkiness of him, and he's he's difficult to get into grips with his powers. Uh, so the casting is just is so fantastic here, and yeah, I I expected great things from Tom Holland ever since I first became aware of him in The Impossible, yeah, the film with Hugh McGregor and Naomi Watts about the aftermath of the Bandai tsunami, yeah, and yeah, he's he's got the chops. But back to the film, I guess. Um, the film begins with some poor schlubs led by Adrian Toomes, Michael Keaton getting screwed over by the government and Tony Stark as they lose their contract to clean up the aftermath of the Avengers battle in New York City. Rightly a tad miffed, Keaton and his crew snaffle some of the alien tech and set themselves up as gunrunners. We then jump forward eight years to Spidey's trip to and part in the nearly consequence-free CGI smackfest in the world's most boring location, also known as the airport fight in Civil War, but seen from the point of view of Peter's smartphone as he records a video diary, which is a considerably more entertaining take on that event. Isn't it just? <laughs> and then some. <laughs> Returning to Queens afterwards, life is frustratingly normal for Parker as he is consistently not called into action by the Avengers again. And John Favreau's happy, Spidey's liaison, seems to be ignoring him. Which leaves Peter with regular high school life, an academic decathlon championship, and petty crimes as his main activities. Which is to say he's stopping the petty crimes rather than committing them. <laughs> Um, until that is, he happens to stumble upon members of Toom's crew selling some rather overpowered weaponry, and he determines to find out where they are coming from and stop them. Now, there are a few problems with Homecoming. Visually, it's not the most exciting film you ever see. It's competent, but it's not special in that regard, and certainly not distinctive. Not that it's DC-like grim either, but while undeniably goofy at points, Sam Raimi's trilogy had an appealing, saturated, cartoonish aesthetic that suited the mm. material well, but the Marvel Cinematic Universe is supposed to be serious and cool, so no people being turned into skeletons for this Spider-Man. <laughs> and it's all the worse for it, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and there's a, an incredible blandness to the general look of a lot of the Marvel Cinematic Universe films. I think maybe only the, the Guardians of the Galaxy films feel different. Yeah, they got they got to use like more than three colours. Yeah, they got, they got to use colour. I mean, some of the characters have colour because the Iron Man suit very colourful, although the one in this is actually toned down, it's very muted. Maybe just so the Spider-Man red and blue suit stands out. But yeah, it's, it's becoming very bland and samey, the visual look of that. And I understand to some degree the idea of trying to make it uniform, but there's just no distinctiveness to it. Yeah. But yeah, it's competent and at least there's there is merit in other parts of it but visually it's just, I want some flair you know or hmm. some style and this film doesn't have any it's, I mentioned the Marvel Cinematic Universe and 
it suffers from being part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. While it is tied in well and makes sense, that's something. They have thought about it. There's some thought into basing things on actions that have happened in other films and there there was consequence or at least some sort of lingering effect. Hmm. And that's good. It does get a little tiresome though and elements like the Captain America instructional videos ought to have been jettisoned entirely. Something I suspect Chris Evans and his entirely phoned-in performance would agree with. And Robert Downey Jr. is generally a welcome sight, but I think even he is beginning to tire of this, and Homecoming could do with a good 33% less Tony Stark. Further, though in this film it isn't the problem that it could be as it turns out to be a plot device, Spidey's Stark-engineered suit is in danger of making the character Iron Man light, Hmm. so I'm a little concerned about where that's going to go in future instalments. However, it does provide several moments of humour as Peter talks to Suit Lady, the Spider Suit's AI, voiced by Jennifer Connelly, who is of course the real-life wife of Paul Bettany, who is Iron Man's Jarvis AI. But mentioning the humour there brings us on to the positives, of which I'm glad to say there are many. And the first is that this is a very funny film. Some of it is at Pete's expense, but is generally closer to laughing with him than at him as this 15-year-old tries to get to grips with his new abilities and his responsibilities while navigating the treacherous waters of high school and relationships. Said high school is a very racially diverse place, and also fortunately devoid of the tiresome jock bullies and mean girl cliques that populate so many US schools and cinema. The writers and directors were apparently influenced by John Hughes films, but that seems, thankfully, fairly minimal on the final product even with the very direct reference to the inexplicably popular Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah, but do you remember all those classic John Hughes moments where someone took alien technology and engineered a wingsuit and then tried to rob high-tech components from Tony Stark? No, no, because that didn't happen. They keep mentioning John Hughes. It's like there's one scene which has a direct rip-off of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and other than that, it has kids in it. There's nothing else John Hughesian about it. I don't know where this talking point came up with. I think this has been briefed yeah, by Marvel. Know, There's nothing John Hughes about this film apart from one. Of yeah, it's been there, it's been in every every press junket and things. And like, yeah, but yes, it's. I'm very pleased to see that it's not there because as a general, John Hughes films aren't good. It's not something that's ever appealed to me. Just think about our friends at the Magic Lantern podcast did a, an episode recently on Say Anything. And the Cameron Crowe take on high school is so much more appealing than the John Hughes take on high school. Uh, And I'm I'm glad that this just doesn't have that. And again, also, why Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Ferris Bueller's Day Off is a terrible film and I've never understood its popularity. I may be straying off topic here slightly though. That classic Um, scene in Ferris Bueller's Day Off where he cuts a ferry in half and has to tie it back together with (laughs) webbing. Yeah, that's... (laughs) Known for his use of extravagant CG, John Hughes was, wasn't he? Yeah. Yes, but it was worth mentioning John Hughes because, it has, because obviously you've been aware of it too. It's been in everything. People keep talking about it and it's like, but it's not in the film. <laughs> what are they talking about? Talking of the writers as I was um, a few minutes ago though, the film feels considerably more cohesive than you might expect from a script with six credited screenwriters, which on the face of it sounds like a recipe for disaster. The screenplay is actually the film's greatest strength, at least after the likeable and engaging performance of Tom Holland. There is, blissfully, no origin story. We get nothing more than I was bitten by a spider. And no Uncle Ben moment. Yes, I didn't have to go through that again. It avoids the cheap, lame jokes that films like this would definitely have gone for in the past. Oh, he's not got many clothes on, he's with another boy. Oh no, he must have the gaze. And it smartly gives Spidey someone in whom he can confide, so he's not doing this all alone. 
It must be said though that it's pretty weak on female roles, but story development suggests that that may change in a sequel, and crucially, it has a good villain, something which has been mentioned by ourselves and everybody else for for the entirety of the 312 years we've been in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that the villains are terrible. So yes, it has a good villain, if that's not a contradiction in terms. A villain that has a motive that's understandable and makes sense and isn't for some reason destroying the world because of profit reasons or something. Yes. I mean, it could be argued that Adrian Toomes, a.k.a. the Vulture, is not too dissimilar to Ant-Man's Darren Cross, but with the crucial differences that Toomes' motivation, dollar dollar bill y'all, is more compelling than megalomania, and that he's played by Michael Keaton. As Jules Winfield observed, personality goes a long way. On top of that, a crook trying to make a buck is considerably more engaging and fitting to Spider-Man than the end of the world scenarios that trouble much of the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's going to be a couple of years, I suspect, until I know whether I think this is better than the first two Raimi films, but it's at least as good as. And this feels like a different Spider-Man, and in a good way. Thoroughly recommended. Yes, um, it's nice to see... Small stakes coming back to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and it's one of the things I also liked about the tangentially related Deadpool movie. You know, they're they're not out on a battle to save the world. This is some relatively small achievable goal that makes sense, and they've went out and achieved it. Um, Rather than having the stakes be the world being destroyed by yet another blue laser. So mm. it was nice to see that. It's nice to see, as I say, a villain that you can actually understand why they became villains and has his very sensible yes. reasons for turning the way that, that it did. Yeah, and it's not even a particularly villainous villain. There's no cackling, there's no megalomania, no. there's no. He didn't go to get turned mad by something. It's like, <laughs> yeah, he's a crook and, and he wants to keep his business empire alive, basically. Yeah. He's not even out for revenge, even if he was no, no. arguably screwed out of things by uh, Tony Stark. Who, he, all he wants to do is keep making money by, admittedly, nefarious means. And I think the crucial thing for me about this film was it's just really funny. Yeah, it really uh, is. Um, I said that. Surprisingly yeah. funny. And it is more, it's more humour than comedy. Mm. And that is really rather appealing. And uh, yeah, I think John Watts, the director, I've not really seen anything he's done before, but he does do a lot of work with The Onion, I think, in their both videos and the, the kind of TV stuff that they do. So... Uh, right, that okay. is presumably where an awful lot of this uh, <laughs> attitude is coming from. And it really shines through and it makes this a far more enjoyable watch. What I liked about this film is that the jokes in it make sense and are actual jokes and aren't <laughs> the sort of Whedon-esque things that are showed up in all the rest of these films where you have people in you know immediate existential danger just slinging one-liners at each other because that's what they do um, in situations where you should be you know, genuinely afraid for your life or have some sort of dramatic... Uh, they should be trying to build some dramatic tension. Instead, what they're doing is just cracking little one-liners at each other because that's the way these films roll. But here, actually, all makes sense. And, it's, and even just mention that thing about the uh, the way that they've shown this actions of uh, the Civil War film with his camcorder, which is the smartphone thing, is like a million times smarter than anything else Marvel's done in all the rest of their films. <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoyed this film a great deal. It's probably, I would say, the most enjoyable Marvel film that's been made since the dawn of this whole Marvel Cinematic Universe. I probably even enjoy it more than the early Iron Man films, which I think would be my other contenders for this. Um, as you say, maybe I think maybe Downey Jr. is getting a little bit bored of this role, but he's still got enough sort of charisma to, to kind of half-ass it and get his way through. Yeah, but that's, yeah. It, it does feel half-assed. It feels like he's coasting. Or 
ich stark mir ist tired doing this. Um, maybe I shall physical exhaustion rather than being tired of the roles on. But that's he, he didn't seem quite as sparky as normal. Whereas you know Chris Evans is clearly just bored out of his tits. Yeah, and he, I suppose by this he has film. been for a while. I think by a lot of his roles, I yeah, forgive it more in I this missed, film because he was always supposed to be somewhat disinterested in what he's doing. But yeah, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's quite well known that Chris Evans doesn't like being Captain yeah. America. Um, he wants to be an actor, mm. like rather than a movie star. But I'm, I'm sure his bank manager's not complaining too much. Yeah, so. <laughs> just heartily enjoyed it. It's uh, it's got a nice story that's self-contained, makes a lot of sense. I guess maybe what they're going with Tony Stark was more of the kind of disappointed father figure thing, which is why he's a bit more grounded and a bit less offbeat than he normally is, perhaps. Uh, which uh, yeah. kind kind of sort of works. Certainly, it didn't it didn't hamper my enjoyment of the rest of the film, which is um, as as good as Spider Man as I've seen. Yeah, very very happy with all of it. Look forward to seeing more of him. I would hope seeing more of him in a Spider-Man franchise rather than trying to drag him into other ones because he just doesn't fit. What's he got to do against Thanos? Fire a web at him? Nah, um, that's just... Yeah, and he's also, he's 15, yeah. you know, and I always... And I've never read the comic books, more than maybe one or two, but maybe like the Spider-Man and Friends mm. or whatever the various cartoons were that when we were growing up. But Spider-Man was always my favourite comic book character and like the the wisecrack of the stuff was always great. But I've never been so familiar with the character in the comic books but from listening to people who are big fans of that seem really really pleased with this particular take mm-hmm. on them and that the smaller scale crime fighting stuff is what Spider-Man's supposed to do Yeah, and it just it's more interesting too because it's remarkable how quickly the whole the world's going to end wears yeah. you to the point where you almost instantly don't care yeah. especially because you know I mean, you know the character's never going to lose these things but when it's the world, when the, the the threat is that the world is going to end, well, well, they're not going to finish the film with the world ending then. <laughs> yeah. But if it's a film where this bad man who makes the bad guns um, is trying to steal the things to make more bad guns, well, maybe he could get away yeah. with it, <laughs> you know, because that, that's conceivable that the thing could possibly go there. Whereas it, they're never going to end it with the world ending. So, yeah, it's just, you get so much more engaged in smaller scale stuff. Yeah, and I think I've worked out a while back that there's maybe about 50% of these Marvel films that I like. That percentage might go up quite a bit if you started including the Netflix, say, Marvel TV stuff, which, again, mm. is all kind of relatively more small-scale um, stuff with, like, Daredevil and such like yeah. that, which I think fits better as well. Um, so that I didn't care at all for Agency S.H.I.E.L.D., but I did watch a few um, episodes of Luke Cage, mm. And again, that was like smaller scale and it's like local neighbourhood crime and stuff. And like, mm-hmm. I was actually, it's quite slow burning, but I was really getting into to that. So it, that scale seems to work so much better. Yeah, so that, I was thinking of that Daredevil and even January Jones. Actually, I've not seen any of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. because that seemed a bit too rah-rah, actually, for my taste. It's incredibly Joss Whedon yeah. to it. And also partly because of how it's produced, but it does look and feel like a Buffy the Vampire Slayer type thing. Mm-hmm. And I never cared for that. <laughs> Curiously, some of the smaller, darker stuff works better on telly than it does up in the cinema. Bring it back to Spider-Man. Easily recommend it. Probably the best comic book movie we'll see this year. Uh, actually, Logan's really good too. Um, yeah, fighting for I, it very strongly. I think I prefer Logan, but it's, you can't compare them because the tone is so yeah. different. I think we mentioned last episode uh, Logan's barely a comic book movie at all. But yeah, certainly what we're saying is if you've any tolerance left for Marvel. Certainly it seems like an awful lot of people do. You should go and see Spider-Man Homecoming. It's the best thing out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in years. 
Yeah, so I think my level of enjoyment must be a little under yours, but I still thoroughly enjoyed it. I think we just want to let it settle a bit. Maybe I'll watch it again, maybe a year's time. It's got charm and humour and it feels different from the other things. And not just because of the scale, because Peter Parker is so different. Mm. He's not a billionaire tech genius, although he's a tech genius. He's not um, this huge buff guy. I mean, he's a kid mm. and it's it's nice. And also imagine that kids watching this will like the fact that he's the kind of scrawny little kid. Yeah. You have to be very careful about using the words grounded or realistic when you're talking about a human with the powers of a spider. But compared to if you've seen the trailer for Thor Ragnarok, mm. which looks ridiculous in every way you can possibly imagine, this feels so much more down to earth. And obviously literally because Thor Ragnarok takes place in space, but it's just so much lower key and it's nice. Yeah, it's just, they've just turned all the dials down a bit, and it's refreshing because your brain can only take so much of everything being turned up to eleven. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, Spider-Man: Homecoming, good. Yes. Yes. So that's us finally at the end of this intermission episode. But we do have some feedback on Twitter, I believe, Mister Morse. If you'd like to fill us in on that, please. Yes. You asked for your thoughts, and you gave them to us. Thank you. First up, I guess it's. Do from the Films and Swearing podcast on the Twitters at FAS Podcast. Oaksha felt like a live action Studio Ghibli movie, even with the piggy concentration camps. I adored the film, <laughs> and uh, as we discussed, I agree. Drew doesn't. That curmudgeon. <laughs> Blake writes at Blake writes. I'm dead inside Scott, clearly. <laughs> Perpetual dumb machine at Blake writes. Didn't see the circle, but read the book. I guess I'm that guy. Some claim its narrator's blind obeisance was satire. If it was, I missed it. I agree, just satire, or just simply not making sense. You decide. And he goes on to say that Spider-Man was great, the best Spider-Man we've had, most Spider-Man we've had, also more humanity than Marvel's usual world-exploding fare. And yes. Yes, exactly. Uh... <laughs> and at M. Toller, Matt Toller, who's upgraded himself now to these tweets are okay. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly what I was going to say if we spoke about that. <laughs> Read my mind. Uh, War for the Planet of the Apes was fantastic. Introduction of mutated virus may have been one plot contrivance too many, but it was too odd by the effects to notice. And also going on to say that there's a seed of a good movie in Cure for wellness, but it was stretched thin over two and a half hours. That's a long time, which you can guess what's going on in the first hour. Yes, it's a very long time. Very long time indeed. Uh, you've underestimated the amount of time it feels like as well. Uh, more like 25. Yes, by a factor of about yes. 10, <laughs> at least. That's what a lot from Zitviters. Thanks very much for your feedback, and we look forward to hearing more of it. Yes, and as always, thank you very much to everybody who retweets our announcements of episodes, etc., on Twitter. Well, where else would you retweet them? <laughs> but you know very well what I mean. We do appreciate that, and we we like hearing from you. So please talk to us. We like conversation, and it's nice to hear voices that aren't ourselves. <laughs> what I would like to mention just before we go is happy birthday to us. Because it was so important we managed to miss it ourselves. That's us now two years and a bit old. Which is scary because... We've aged really Scott... badly. <laughs> I mean, I'm a, I'm a ruin. Uh, <laughs> um, and mentioning it too because, yes, that's, I think our first episode was the 5th of July 2015. That sounds right, Scott, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, that's about right. So, yes, we're now two years old in our guys' fuzz and film. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm actually pretty proud of the work we put out. So hope you agree with that. Um, I do. And uh, yeah. <laughs> but if you don't, at least please tell us why. Tell us, um, at least tell us how you think we're doing. And if you've got the time to leave us a wee review or something, we'd always appreciate that because it just gets more 
well, yes, it's going to rub our ego too. Let's be honest about it. But it gets more people listening if we get some reviews. And that's what we want. It's like to know you're not talking into the great internet ether and that people are actually listening is rather pleasing. Ethernet, sure. Um, I might have made that joke before. Also, though, the scary thing is that we're now just two months shy, Scott, of you, Craig, and I having been podcasting together for 10 years. Because we're very, very, very old and we'll be dead soon, thankfully. But you think we'd be good at it by this point, but... Yes, yes, that, that frightens me <laughs> that it's that September 2007 we began in the one-liner. But, so we did manage, what, 120-odd episodes in seven or eight years, or eight years on the one-liner. And we're now on episode 74 in two years in Fuds and Films. So having some sort of structured schedule seems to work quite yeah. well. <laughs> it's strange because we, we started Fuds and Film because we didn't have enough time to see the films we wanted to see and have ended up seeing more films and making more podcasts. And I can't work out how that has come about, but I'm pleased it has. <laughs> and we thank you for joining us on this journey. That's it, really. Just wanted to, at least, we generally don't care that much about anniversaries or milestones or anything, but I don't know, two years already. It seemed worth mentioning. But we had this trumpet lying around, so we thought we'd just blow it. See what we <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit of a waste yeah. otherwise, isn't it? I mean, a trumpet, like anything else, wants to fulfil its purpose in life. That's it from us for this episode. I was Drew. Scott was Scott. I certainly was. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.